Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of the 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president, and I teach Old Testament here, and I'm joined by our professor of systematic theology, Grace Sutanto, our professor of New Testament and academic dean, Tommy Keene and our instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church, Paul Jean. Peter Lee is not with us, and uh, we, we miss having him here uh, in this conversation, but we also give thanks for him because he's celebrating his sabbatical this semester, and so he is off sabbating, resting, working, getting some, getting some uh, well-deserved research under his belt, and uh, we look forward to him coming back in the wintertime, being a part of this program again. I suspect he may, uh, he may drop in over the course of the fall as a, as a bit of a guest to the, to the faculty podcast. But we're going to continue on today in our study of the Ten Commandments. And we're walking through the Ten Commandments. We did a bit of an intro last week. We talked about the first commandments, that we shall have no other gods before the Lord our God who brought us out of Egypt. Uh, out of the house of slavery. And so now we continue on to the second commandment. And I'll read this. This will come from the Exodus passage, just to kind of remind us. This is one of the long passage, uh, long commandments that has a little bit of explication that comes along with it. Uh, it's matched in that way by, uh, by the commandment about the Sabbath day. So let me go ahead and read this in full. This is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord, excuse me, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there's a lot there, but I guess the first question is, what, what relevance does a passage like this that's filled with ancient Near Eastern cosmogony, or you have the structure of the universe, you have the waters above the earth, the, the waters below the earth. You have a lot of language here that feels very ancient and maybe disorienting to us. What does a passage like this have to do with modern day Christians? I think the first thing pro probably that we need to say is that a passage like this reminds us that God doesn't just care about right belief about him, but God also cares about the way in which we relate to him, how we worship him is very important to God. I think oftentimes today we think about Christianity and Christian worship. We think, well, we believe in Jesus, but how we worship him doesn't really matter, you know, and how we do church don't really matter. But actually, given the, the, the breadth of the second commandment, the, the depth of the second commandment is actually telling us how we relate with him incredibly matters to God as well. And hence, he's a jealous God. We can't just relate with him like we would any other God. There's a particular way of worshiping him that pleases him. And then another way that actually really displeases him, that the, the commandment comes with a warning that the wrath of God here, because he's a jealous God, could actually come down on us if we worship him improperly. Yeah, it's not just the object. Yeah of our worship that's important is that it's the manner of worship. And if you think about the story of the old Testament, this is an issue that comes up over and over again 
particularly in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, I remember as a, as a kid reading that and being like, what's the, what's the deal with the high places? Why is that such a bad thing? Particularly when there's evidence that they're worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping the Lord at the high places, uh, not always singularly the Lord, um, but it gets at the problem. And this was the problem for every northern king, right? It's why they're all, not, they're all judged as not doing what is good in the eyes of the Lord, according to the author of Kings because they don't tear down the high places and that has to do with that has to do not just with the object of worship but the manner you know you're supposed to worship in jerusalem and god cares about how we worship and actually takes it very seriously yeah along those lines um if we consider this from the new testament perspective um that expands maybe our idea of worship people tend to think about worship um, in terms of what they do on sundays but uh, i think it's been really interesting to interact especially with Christians that are orthodox in their doctrine, very orthodox in their doctrine, but they don't seem equally concerned about reforming their lifestyle. You know? And uh, so an example is, you know, when you think about the faith in the West, it's very individualistic and you, know, you just can't escape it. And so what I've noticed as a pastor and a preacher is that, you know, when you preach about living life together, you know, and really just that aspect, for some reason, people don't seem to take it very seriously, right? Whereas if you talk about the need to you know, maintain your walk with the Lord, they take that very seriously. So I think that this overall like thought process of reforming, um, not just my view on God, but how I relate to God is something that you know we really need to recover uh, in churches everywhere, probably, but at least in our immediate context. Interesting, the uh, kind of reason attached. Um, you know, this isn't an arbitrary command, similar to the first commandment. You know, we're given a kind of a context and a reason for it, a justification for it. And this one, that our God is a jealous God, which doesn't sound like a good thing. I mean, we don't use the word jealousy in a kind of positive way, but here it's being used as a as a positive reason for for the commandment. Thoughts? Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting, isn't it? That God is called a jealous God, and this kind of feeds into the previous commandment too. And the logic of this has got to be something along the lines of the idea that God is not merely life but he is the source of all life, right? He is the source of all that is good and all that we desire and all that is around us. And this is kind of a unique part of the biblical faith, right? God doesn't just rule over a certain jurisdiction. So because there's a variety of natural phenomenon, we have to have a variety of gods to cover each one of those jurisdictions. But the God of the Bible is very different. He lords over all of creation and there is none who are like him. And that's a natural undergirding. It's a natural attribute of our God that out of which a commandment like this comes, he's not jealous because, well, he knows there's a lot of other gods out there, but he only wants our love because he gets kind of insecure or something like that. It's that there is nothing else. There's no other God who is like him. And so mm -hmm. any other worship alongside the worship of the creator God is faulty and ultimately kind of, uh, you know, death word, you know, is the, is the idea of think it's unto death, it's unto destruction. And so the worship of our God has to be a kind of singular one. I think this is lies at the heart of the Mosaic law, isn't it? That 
because our God is one and because he is our covenant God, we therefore should respond with a wholehearted and whole person love of him. And again, it's not because he's insecure. It's not because he's got kind of a chip on his shoulder or something like that. It's because he is the only one who is truly worthy of our worship. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned oh. the, that idea of like, um, can't, can't he just ignore it? Can't, can't he just kind of move on? Can he just be bigger than that? I, I think in a number of conversations I've had over the last 20 years, really, I remember the first time in college, you know, or t- sort of I, I reached out evangelistically to somebody and they said, like, why does God get upset when I don't obey his commandments? Can't he just look the other way? Like, that's what we do in life all the time. Why, why is he jealous? And the analogy that comes to mind, and I'm pretty sure this is like a Tim Keller thing, because it sounds like a very Tim Keller thing, but, but I, I haven't, I don't, I haven't traced the origin, but the analogy that comes to mind is like, well, actually in most of our relationships, we want a bit of jealousy. Like if you imagine a, like a, a, a husband, wife kind of relationship and a spouse has been, you know, um, uh, unfaithful in some way, and the, you know, the other person responds without jealousy, that's odd. You, you, you actually want that. It, it's an indication or a function of a relationship built on love that there is some jealousy attached to it, an appropriate God-honoring faithfulness related to and defined by, you know, that relationship. And so here, here you've got God who is, who is, as you said, like the great, the greatest good for which we can strive. And he's also established a relationship with us by covenant. And it's appropriate within that relationship that there be this desire for mutual love for for one another. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how this commandment points us back to the earlier commandment, as Scott said, because the kind of being God is determines how we should relate with him, but also points forward to the next commandment about not taking the name of your Lord in vain. Right, because we need to keep in view here that the God of the Bible is a very particular kind of being. He's not a being like any other beings, so you don't get to just represent him any way you want, but rather you have to address him in the way that he has revealed himself to you. And I think that really goes against again the sort of cultural affirmation that whatever divine being we believe in is just a kind of projection or is a totally subjective therapeutic kind of belief, which means that you could worship whatever God you want and you could worship him in any way you want and you could use any name you want to describe whatever religious belief you have which is so against the idea of covenant the idea of the uniqueness of god that we broached last week and just the whole grain of of the biblical text here yeah that's really good it's it's pushing us towards a very relational and knowing worship right it's not god is is not a vague force he's not an impersonal kind of light or something like that, but that this is a God who is entering into a covenant, into relationship with us. I think that's, that's super important aspect of this. Okay. So let's get at the part of this where there's a bit of uh, there's still a bit of controversy just in terms of interpreting what the passage means. I just was at a presbytery meeting recently and someone took an exception to uh, the Westminster Assembly's documents on this point. And we don't have to just talk about that, but it is interesting. It raises this question. What, what does it mean then? Why is it important not to make a carved image? Okay. Or any likeness 
that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or the water under the earth. What's what's going on there with this idea of a, of a visible image? And I think just to add more fuel to the fire there, perhaps, Scott, we should also ask, what about images of Christ? Because God himself chosen one particular earthly representation, namely the body of Jesus Christ. Are images of Christ impossible? Great, you're the ST guy. You're, you're supposed to take fuel off the fire. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm also asking this selfishly because I also yes. want to hear from all of you about this. Stay in your lane, Gray. Come on. It's, it's a difficult question. <laughs> it is a difficult question. Well, and that's that's the question, right? I mean, so how how broadly do we? I've heard people, ex, you know, have an ex, incredibly expansive notion of this, so that you know there can be no representation at all. I remember actually visiting someone's house during Christmas time and they had hung up Christmas cards, but they had put electric tape slices over every image of Jesus, of baby Jesus, who was on the front of the, of the Christmas card so that they could still sort of an audacious thing to hang the Christmas card anyways, but with electric tape stuck down the middle of it. You know, how, how far does this go? Is this just talking about public worship? Uh, in other words, adorning your sanctuary? with spaces or with, with Im- images of any kind? What is, what is an image? Because notice he actually doesn't just say of God. It says of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or the water beneath the earth. You know, So it, it, there's a whole lot going on here. I've also heard people say, no, this is only talking about sort of carved images of the ancient pagan type, you know, and therefore everything else is sort of open to us, right? So there's a lot of questions here. I think this is where the ground can be really helpful. Like the reason for the commandment is because God wants our love and God wants us to love him, you know, first commandment. He wants him to love him above all other things, but also second commandment in the way that he has described. And that's, that's the intent here. And and all that makes sense. If we keep the language of a relationship, you know, in the forefront that we don't get to choose how someone else experiences love, experiences affection and, and, and favor. They get to define that. And so God is the greatest good, defines, defines how he is to be loved. And that then undergirds like all of the various applications of, of the commandment. I, I think about, and I guess the kind of like preliminary point I'd make there is just that we're not left with just this commandment to define how God is to be loved, how he is to be worshiped. Actually, all of scripture is about that. And so if we can't solve the dilemma just by an exegetical reflection on commandment two. We have to look at the rest of the covenant made with Israel. We've got to look at how that is, you know, how that crescendos into the New Testament and how Jesus then encourages us to think about himself as he opens up the scroll and brings about the glorious end of all things. Like that's that defines then the broader picture of what the church is supposed to do as it loves, as it loves, it's gone. Yeah. I think that that's why a good exegesis, a good reformed exegesis for that matter, covenantal exegesis kind of gives you that power that I can say, okay, so however I interpret this to use the language of, of Westminster, it can be understood in light of other clear passages too. Right. And I can draw this to you. I need to understand this in light of what's going on in the temple. And in light of what Jesus says about himself and how the early church worships him. And this gives me other points to triangulate an interpretation on something like this passage. 
And that's super helpful because you do see, for instance, in the temple, we do see there are there are images of a sword and uh, you could atomize the text and say, well, that's a different thing. This is talking about one thing and the temple's talking about a totally other thing. And so those two don't speak to each other. And, and there are there are folks who do that. But, you know, if Westminster's right and if the I think the broader Christian tradition is right, then the scripture actually is speaking with one voice and we can read it and we can understand it in light of that one voice. What? And, you know, the coming of Christ, the incarnation does, does affect us. Like that is a factor to be, you know, it's a redemptive historical factor that we have to include in our calculations of what, what's appropriate here. The fact that God made himself manifest, uh, in my view, uh, does encourage a kind of hermeneutical reflection again on the, on the commandment. So, for example, I, I once was in discussion with somebody at church, and they were very concerned about language of like, consider Jesus on the throne, or consider, uh, consider Christ, you know, as he's washing the disciples' feet, and they were concerned about that, because what it did is it forced them to think about God as a, you know, in physical form, in a material form, and to supply a kind of image there through their imagination, and is that breaking then the second commandment and i'd and i'd argue no we need to be careful about that kind of thing and we don't want you know to pretend like jesus looks like me um or, or has a you know particular visage but at the same time scripture does this it encourages us to engage our imagination you know revelation does this all the time to engage our our imaginations to picture you know Jesus glowing like bronze, you know, and so that we're, we're this a pictorial view actually is is helpful for us in considering who who we worship. Nevertheless, we have to do that in a manner that's constrained by by God's word, and we don't make images of these things. To Scott's like original question too, I think, uh, and this is obvious, I think, to everybody, but still a real liability when you have an image is that generally have you noticed that the images people choose correspond to their natural disposition so let's say i want a loving god then they'll probably have like a image a picture of jesus as a shepherd right or you know if you're more the um the wrathful type you have like some image that shows god's power and so I think the liability with having images is that even if the image is a good portrayal of one aspect of God, it tends to keep us just um, isolated in our natural bent versus um, having a full understanding mm. of God. You know, and, mm. and that's why I think the, the bent of the Bible is more reflect on God in all his glory, you know, obviously, ultimately in Jesus, right? But um, that way, you know, it's funny, people always say we need to maintain like a big picture of God, but that's really hard to imagine if you are really thinking about God in terms of one or two main images. Yeah, that's great, Paul. And it, it's, it, it reminds us that these are practical commandments and they have to do with us diminishing our worship not not being you know not being too expansive in our worship but diminishing it and we diminish our worship of the lord 
when we image him in one kind of specific way, right? As soon as we do that, we're diminishing our worship. And, that, and that's why I think it's important, you know, as you're thinking about something like this, you know, the, the word, you know, Tommy, as you pointed out, the word does describe God. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm doing some work on Ezekiel right now. And in Ezekiel's visions of the Lord, he spends a lot of time describing it, like kind of really trying to get you to see what he's seeing. You know, he's using multiple synonyms to try to, he sounds like a person, like a father trying to describe to a child, you know, the sunset that he saw the night before. He's really trying to get at it so that you have this mental image of, of the Lord. And yet it is communicated through the word, right? And we are a, we are a religion of the word. We're, we're a religion of hearing, right? And we're looking forward to the time when we will see, Okay, but we are a religion, we're, we're a faith that is based on the word and particularly the incarnate word, you know, and so I think this, I, th- I think you can't have too a broad of an application of this. And I think Westminster helps us in this regard because Westminster, first of all, kind of says this is about worship, right? So you start with that. This is about worship and objects of worship and the manner in which we worship. And, uh, and, and, and that's an important distinction to make. But we also have to be careful. I mean, I think all the attempts to try to get any kind of symbolism out of the sanctuary uh, during worship really is difficult. That's a problematic endeavor. And as John Frame points out in his book on worship, even having a completely blank white wall is still sending a symbolic, you know, metaphoric message, right? So you really can't get away from symbolism. You can't get away from representation. And yet at the same time, you know, we're called to be really careful about imaging, particularly imaging the the Lord in our worship. Yeah, I think we got to distinguish between kind of the inevitable ways in which we picture God or symbolize God in our daily imaginations and also in our daily uh, manners of worshiping God. That's one thing from, let's say, public worship and saying this thing is God or this thing is like God in a very direct way univocal or one-to-one way right because again the purpose of this is basically to say that god is not like whatever is in the creature god is not a creature at all and so you don't represent him in that way and even when it comes to the incarnation we don't have access to a pictorial representation of what jesus christ was like so let us instead mediate our worship through the descriptions of scripture rather than come up with our own physical representation of what jesus christ is like and if we also believe that god has given us everything that we need in scripture and scripture hasn't told us all the physical characteristics of Jesus. That's telling us that perhaps that's not something we should be focusing upon, but rather it's about his person and work that we need to have a grasp on instead. Yeah. And circling back to revelation in that regard, you know, I think you're, you're exactly right. One of the things that it's interesting, John is giving us a, a verbal description of what he saw. So John got to see something, but, but we, we're given just that verbal description. And there is a distancing that takes place and a kind of cloaking that takes place in, in that um, so that we're not given the kind of information to imagine kind of the human characteristics of Jesus and, and, and all of those kinds of details, but we're given this, this symbolic description of, of what John saw. Um, so yeah, to kind of qualify the point I made earlier, Yes, we're to engage our imagination, but at the same time, we're to do so in the manner of which scripture kind of sets and the trajectory that it that it it provides for us. 
to guide us to worship of the of 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 Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Tanya, with that, you know, it's um my kids are young and when they ask me questions about God, I think one of the advantages of not having too many images in our home, well, not too many, we have none, just to be clear, but um, is that when you give an image, it's almost like their imagination or their reflection stops. Mm, like, okay, good. this is God. But, you know, when they are forced to think about the Bible, right? You notice that, and I love the way you put it, not just um, just think broadly on their own, like who God is, but really given the guidance of the Bible, it does tend to expand their, you know, perspective on God. I think in a way that's way beyond if we just had various icons in our home. So, I mean, that's been practically very helpful for us. Well, and I liked your earlier point about the plethora of of various images that we have, everything from God as a mother hen to God as a, a burning fire to, you know, the, uh, you know, all of these different things that are designed to give us to the fact that we have so many indicate so many um, metaphors indicates that we are very limited actually in our understanding. Like there's nothing like to, to Gray's point earlier, there's nothing that can fully capture this he is the unknowable, ineffable God, um, and yet has signed himself to us in, in, in these variety of ways. And we need the fullness thereof to really even begin to, to see who God is. Yeah, and I think it's really worth emphasizing how important it is that this particular command, even though it's coming in a prohibition, is actually keeping us from limiting our view of God. You know, this is something that, that Paul has, has mentioned in his contributions earlier, that, that really by having an image, you're actually limiting your worship. You're actually not allowing your children's imagination to be expanded. You're not allowing yourself to expand your vision of who God is, but it actually limits your worship to have a physical representation. So I think earlier on when I was wrestling with this, and, you know, sometimes you have questions as well from your congregants, they're like, well, why can't we have an image? Why is God so limiting of our worship of him? You know, doesn't that help? that you're not just hearing about him, but also you're seeing something about him. But actually, it's incredibly, again, limiting that visual representation limits our worship and, and the commandment expands our worship of God. Yeah, there's a passage, you know, in Isaiah 44, and I think we referenced this last week when we were talking about um, the first commandment, but uh, Isaiah has this kind of long essay, poetic essay on idol worship and idol making. And you know, he highlights a couple of aspects of the idols. One of them is he highlights their worthlessness. And the word that he used there is often used synonymously with idol worship, you know, calling them empty or, or, or worthless things. But then he has this long explication in a way, or kind of description of the idol maker and how the idol maker goes down and he cuts down the tree and the tree's wood would be just as good for burning and making a fire as it would for what he's going to use it be for what he's going to use it for. And then he carves it out and he, uh, he eats food using the same wood that he would have used for the, you know, the idol. And at the end, he sets it up on his mantelpiece after he's carved it all out. And then he bows down before it and says, save me, you are my God, you know, and he's kind of talking about, again, this kind of diminishing of worship. You know, the, the, it's a bit of, I think it's supposed to be read somewhat humorously. It's kind of 
it's sort of saying, you just made this and now you're saying it's your creator. You, you just made it. Like, look at the context, right? And the idea that we have this tendency as humans to bow down to the things of creation, that we have this tendency, it's like this constant draw back to worship creation and not the creator. This is Paul in Romans 1, 2, right? The invisible attributes of of the creator are seen in creation, and yet we have a way of acknowledging it and not honoring it. You know, we, we recognize it and yet don't glorify him. And there's this constant temptation we have towards, again, worshiping the little things, not the one from whom all the little things came, you know, and that the idol is kind of a perfect picture of that. So you think there's like a greater than here in, in this? I'm just thinking out loud, you know, it's one thing to worship another god. It's it's another thing to to worship an idol and call it the one true god. Is there a kind of like I don't know crescendo involved in the second commandment? To, an application as an application of the first? Yeah, I, th- I think so. It's interesting. I mean, I I typically go kind of go back to it's not merely a matter of quantity though. It is a matter of quant- of quality. You know, it's a creator creature distinction. It's not just one being greater. But you're right. There is this kind of the creation reflects his character, but don't mistake the reflection for the care for the thing itself, right? Yeah, I mean, all, everything we're talking about here is um, very relevant. I think it was Truman when I was at Westminster. He said something uh, very useful. He said, "You know, when you think about a heretic in church history, you usually have this um, caricature of like a bearded man who lives." in isolation with like a small following. But he said it's usually like a very sincere believer that takes one attribute of God and just runs with it. And then that becomes all defining, you know? And again, as we think about like icons and images, right? Um, You know, I wanna be very careful and gracious because I do have some friends who very much are committed to icons and have expressed how much icons have images have served them, especially during difficult times. But again, when we look at the breadth of like church history, we see that this isn't a academic pedantic discussion. It's really, it's almost a liability. Again, if you just have one, because there's no way if you think about God's um, full revelation, you can have like millions of icons in your room. You're usually gonna have one or two. And again, because of just the way we are as a people, that attribute is then going to supersede the other attributes. And that's usually the first step towards, you know, becoming a heretic, as crazy as that might sound. And so I found those comments uh, to be very helpful. It's also relevant in just kind of the basics of how to do church. I mean, if we expand on it a bit, right, that all of scripture tells us how to worship our God, then what we're what we're really given we're not given a manual for how to how to worship uh, because it doesn't come to us as a manual but we're given principles trajectories etc that we apply in a daily life of worship i was i was actually thinking about this on the other day i was listening to a podcast that was talking about um kind of a reformed church a reformed adjacent church and that had charismatic leanings and I was thinking about our previous discussion in um, in Commandment One, uh, you know, and and the re- Paul believing, for example, that there are demons um, and dark principles at work, and what does the church do about that? 
And this one church had, um, I, I, I was not aware of this when we did that last episode, but it was talking about um, demon trials and casting out demons. And the pastor was involved in this kind of, um, had this very worked out formalized process for, uh, for what he called demon trials, all of which is extra biblical. And that's a, that's a sign to us that we're not wor- worshiping God in the right way. Actually, Paul gives us exactly what we're supposed to do, exactly how we're supposed to think about our struggle with principalities and powers. It's right there in Ephesians 6, and it's all normal stuff. It's all prayer and faith and righteousness and just what we what our church used to call um, ordinary means ministry. That that's how we that's how we deal with and uh, these struggles, and that's how we worship our God. These these normal, uh, what we call what we would call normal, kind of ordinary ways in which God communicates His grace to us. And I think that's another kind of line of application for the second commandment is a reminder to us that these good things that God has given to us are the ways in which we approach our heavenly high priest who dwells in the heavenly tabernacle. So I think one way to think about this episode is that this is a 35 minute advert for the regulative principle of worship. (laughs) I think 35, 35 minutes we're pushing it. That's right. You know, that you should only do that, which is explicitly commanded in scripture in relation to worship. And it's actually an incredibly freeing thing. Yep. The thing about outlining exactly what to do with particular sins and outlining exactly what to do, especially with things like demon trials, that is incredibly constricting. And you feel like you're you're lacking the resources to be able to deal with these issues when the Bible is actually enough, right? You don't have to resort to your own wisdom. You don't have to resort to your own methods, but rather just go to scripture. It's actually enough. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I, I think about that with a lot of things, whether it's you know, the, the spiritual warfare stuff that got popular again, interestingly, and, and it's true, uh, it's kind of after the movie, The Exorcist came out, uh, reports of spiritual possession and that kind of thing skyrocketed in the West. But I often point out to those friends of mine who are very interested in that kind of thing, most of the stuff you're talking about there is coming out of kind of medieval superstitious writing, and it's been kind of repackaged in modern terminology but gray you're right it's not just in that i mean one thing that's interesting about about even idol worship or i even think about divination as you see it discussed by moses you know it doesn't say this doesn't work or it doesn't make you it doesn't make you feel good as a matter of fact even in isaiah 44 we have no reason to think that this idol maker doesn't kind of feel better after this process is done and yet what what is god saying this isn't this isn't what i've called uh, you too. This isn't what this isn't how you love me, right? And I think about we we the image of a of a of a husband and a wife is great. You know, if, if a husband said, "I just really love my wife," and he keeps bringing her flowers, regardless of the fact that she's allergic to flowers, but he's like, "I just love how I feel when I pick up those flowers at the at the florist." <laughs> you know, we'd say you're kind of a jerk, right? You're not doing it in a way that is loving to her. You're not and, listening. You're not but, hearing her. You're not hearing her, right? Right. You're not hearing her words, right? You're not listening to her, and I think it's an example here too. I mean, it's, it it could. I, I have I have very good friends in traditions that use iconography, you know, in very disciplined ways, and some of it I want to say I think you can get all of 
I think you can get all the best parts out of just enjoying creation and, and marveling at the beauty of creation. That's okay. But when you then bring it in and kind of make it the focal point or the conduit of your worship, now you're doing something that the Lord has said, that's, that's, that's not the way I've called you to worship. That's not what I've called you to. Amen. I don't know if you meant to land the plane, but you landed that plane, brother. You landed that Did plane. I land it? Okay. There's a good book. I, th- I wonder if he was referencing it in that podcast. Um, there's a good book written by a, it's either a New York Times, I think, or a Washington Post journalist called Exorcism. And uh, it really does, if you want to go into detail, it's really interesting how reports of all of that stuff. I mean, when is, I think, is it 74? I think that Exorcist comes out. It just skyrockets. Hmm. Like, interestingly, in the 1940s and 50s, you saw very little discussion of like demon possession or exorcism or anything like that. It was, I thought it was a fascinating episode, but I couldn't get out of the, my head that I had said the previous week that, you know, like when we worship idols, we're not worshiping nothing. You know, Paul, Paul's idea that, that demons are yeah. you know, affecting the church and then how that could be, which I think is, I think yeah. is true. I think that that, 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 that yeah. we should have a better view of the principalities of powers that we can't see. And yet the way we fight the principalities and powers is not exorcism. It is faith. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ditch on either side of the road, right? You yeah. don't want to become, you don't want to totally be in, in the demythologization project where nothing spiritual is all naturalistic. And at the same time, you don't want to fall into the superstition project. Well, and I loved, I lo- I think it was Sam Storms at the end of that episode that they were interviewing and, yeah. and he made the point like, well, we, we associate um, demonic forces with female sins like gossip and all of these things, but is it going on in pornography? Is it going on in, yeah. uh, I, he didn't mention oppression, but I just, I immediately thought about abuse situations and why, why is there dis- this disparity there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to read Augustine City of God. We have the first meeting for the Paideia group this fall, tomorrow. Um, well, tonight in Washington time. And Augustine just refers to these false idols as demons <laughs> just over and over again. When Rome was worshiping demons, when Rome was sacrificing the demons, when Rome was satiating the demons, where were they when the famine came? Where were they when the wars came? Right. They're not any helpful either. Um and for us to, to keep running back to the demons, thinking that if Rome just ran back to the demons, everything's going to be okay. It's, it's forgetful of history that the demons didn't take care of you. So putting it in that way is incredibly stark. He didn't take the naturalistic route, but rather he said, no, you guys were feeding demons. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, and I wonder too, I mean, when you talk about oppression, is I, and, and I think the Bible affirms this for us. I think this is, a, this is one of those things where it's not an either or. Can oppression be because of a person's personal sin? Absolutely. Can it also be systematic and a demonic yeah. force in the world? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I often tend to think too, I think, yeah, you can have individual iconography or individual use of idols that is just a person giving into sinful inclination. And then I can also see how, yeah, at the, at, 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 at at certain times in church history, when it's become systematic, that it is, it is a demonic oppression. Yeah, I don't think we can ever be conclusive about these things, but it, it is, 
we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. And yeah. I think we focus on the first two really well, and we don't yeah. do the third. Well, that's the that's the joke. I probably I think I've told that joke before. It's a common one, you know. But the that you have, yeah, yourself as your you have you have sin in yourself as a source. You have sin in the world as a source, and you have sin in Satan as as a source. And the reformed often look at the self, right? Total depravity, it's about us. And uh, the fundamentalist looks at the world. It's all about keeping away from the world and all the sins of the world, you know? And the charismatic looks at Satan. It's always Satan, you know? And the problem is all three of them, you know, all three of them are the sources of sin and evil in the world. And we all need to be aware of all three um, and not kind of, you know, you know, falling off into our little groups and, and, and fragmenting over what sins we focus on. Well, thanks, friends, for this conversation. I look forward to continuing this conversation over the course of the fall. For everyone listening, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe uh, wherever you find your podcast, wherever you download uh, your faculty podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Reform Theological Seminary, though, in Washington, D.C., You can come over to our website, rts.edu forward slash Washington, and you can learn more and reach out to us there. Uh, Thanks also to Timo Sazo, our producer and editor, who does an excellent job of making us all sound much better than we normally would. Uh, Until next week, take care. positive reason for for the commandment thoughts i was going to give somebody else a chance <laughs> go ahead gray you look like you're chomping at the bit i was i, I was actually anticipating what you're going to say scott oh okay um i yeah i think that's that's really interesting isn't it that god is called a jealous god and this kind of feeds into the previous commandment too